We're looking at the future of ethics, a meta trend that obviously is across our space, not least of all how we work with clients that want to make ethical investments. So I will be soon joined by Gordon Young. He's an associate at the Ethics Center. He was excited to be here. And Gordon, thank you uh, for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So I'll give you a quick bit of context, because it's not easy if you're speaking for the first time at a conference that you're not at. Technology plays a wonderful role, but I'll quickly elicit that there's 100 people thereabouts in the room today. And as experts within the ecosystem for licensees, they're very passionate about how we can, as a community, think about ethics in the context of supporting Australians to make sensible financial decisions. So Gordon, perhaps to open out, give us some context about the work you're doing with the Ethics Center, your relationship with ethics more generally, and how you frame this concept, because it's quite an academic term, ethics. Yeah, absolutely. No, certainly. Uh, yeah, ethical stewardship is obviously a bit of an emerging term within the market. Uh, as building on the previous presentation, um, there is obviously an increasing demand for ethically responsible investments. Uh, in fact, I think we have some research from the Responsible Investment Association of Australasia found that nine in 10 Australians expect their superannuation or other investments to be invested responsibly and ethically. Where the problem obviously emerges is that, well, if you ask 100 people in a room, are you ethical, the answer is nearly always yes. If you ask them to define that term, we get 100 different responses. And so articulating exactly what it is they mean by that is part of the challenge here. Furthermore, it's probably the first time they ever thought about that question. In fact, I'd imagine that in the most cases, at least amongst most people I've spoken to, they've never thought about where their superannuation is invested insofar as, except insofar as that it is invested. They want to see it grow, obviously. But when they're posed with the question, do you want to invest it ethically? Well, they've never thought of it before. But now, of course, that it's been raised, they're suddenly changing gears and thinking, oh, yeah, that's actually a thing. So that's very much a growing trend. And that's fueled in turn by social media and growing internet literacy, which has effectively made transparency unavoidable, effectively inevitable. Regardless of whether it's accurate or not, there is information going to be circulated about various brands at various times, and it can come out of nowhere. Now, you're obviously all familiar with the concept of memes, so to speak, trends of the day. Um, things can come out of nowhere, become incredibly internationally popular, and then disappear into the night once again. Uh, a really interesting example of that, of course, I'm not sure how many people are familiar with the GameStop um, share shorting scenario, which was, to be perfectly frank, I mean, it was many, many things, but it was purely an act of vindictiveness by a lot of the people involved in that. Um, a lot of people lost a lot of money in order to hold out and wait for those share, uh, those shorters to um, lose their investment purely because they wanted to do that. And that, again, is fueled by that same inevitable transparency, but also the degree of um, cynicism present in the public at the moment, particularly related to the financial sector, uh, for rightly or wrongly. So with that established, we have this increasing um, awareness of the ethical implications of investment and demand for improvements on it. And people that had never thought about it before or may never have thought about it are beginning to become aware of that as more and more of this hits the news and it becomes more and more exposed. And that in turn raises the question of what we actually mean by stewardship, right? So that can be as simple as a set of screening criteria, which is still technically ethics, but it doesn't really count in so far as it's more of a checklist, right? You're not really exerting a lot of critical analysis there. You're just sort of going through the list and checking it off, uh, not determining whether it is in fact actually superior. It's just what we have to do. 
So those, those are two options in and of themselves. So having a uh, critically evaluated framework, something where you're proactively analyzing what exactly is it that we're trying to achieve here and are we in fact achieving it? If we put measures in place to ensure that that is accomplished, which in turn requires us to articulate exactly what it is the client wants. And so facilitating that is going to be part of the skill sets we need to build here. In terms of the various frameworks available in order to determine whether a thing is ethical or not, if that was simple, then we wouldn't need to be having this conversation. And there's a lot of them. We have values frameworks. We have triple bottom line accounting, which many of you will be familiar with, taking into account the economic, the environmental, and the social considerations as equal components rather than just the economic. Uh, we also have life cycle assessment or LCA, which some may be familiar with, which is a far more intensive version of that triple bottom lining. And uh, then there's the ethics centers framework, of course, the uh, purpose, values, and principles breakdown, which is a highly integrated approach, which um, I'm quite proud to represent, frankly. Uh, so there are a lot of frameworks out there with varying degrees of complexity and value as a result, but uh, they are there. It, the question is using the right tool for the job, but we do have to use a tool for the job. The role of trust, however, in all of this is pretty fundamental because when you take into consideration the cynicism present throughout the community and also the lack of trust present, and most of you will be familiar with the Edelman Trust Barometer, um, unfortunately has placed the financial sector at 53% um, trust at the moment, which is just barely scraping in above negative. And uh, obviously the Royal Commission in Australia has not assisted with that. It leads to the question of how it doesn't really matter what you say you're doing. Right? If people don't trust what you're doing, regardless of how rigorous your process is, it doesn't matter, right? They're not going to have faith in your organization or trust in your ethical code. There are a number of ways of handling that, however, and one thing I do indeed like to emphasize the most about this is the role of proof, right? There's one thing to ask for trust, uh, but there's a few things less trustworthy than saying trust me, right? So... That in turn leads to a question of transparency and accountability in building trust based on evidence rather than just purely on hope. Because in many cases, particularly in a large sector or in particularly an emerging sector, the information technology sector being a very good example of that, customers too often don't really have a choice. They've got to use uh, financial services. They've got to use the information technology. And so they have no choice but to trust that the companies are hopefully looking after them which is where you get your cynicism from, right? No one wants to have to rely on someone they don't trust. Therefore, transplanting in accountability and transparency into that space is incredibly valuable because it doesn't just ask them to trust you, it demonstrates that you're worthy of it, that you have proven that you are worthy of that trust. And that's a long-term proposition, obviously, but it is nonetheless a very powerful one. So helping clients to articulate their values and building the skills necessary to do that will go a long way towards this, empowering them as a result. The, putting them in control of what it is they're trying to achieve in the first place will go a long way towards this. You can see the value in an ethically investing firm, for example, helping a client to sit down and saying, this investment that you've never thought about before with your superannuation, for example, would you like it to be invested ethically? Which point, of course, they're going to say yes, because you know it's sort of tautological in a way at which point being able to take that extra step and help them to articulate what they mean by that and then to put empower them by pursuing their objectives with that is a very empowering process. And you can see how that would uh, demonstrate to the client that you actually have their interests at heart rather than just trying to you know, whitewash to some degree. Thanks so much, Gordon. Look, so many powerful ideas. I think we've got four or five threads to draw upon. Obviously, I'll try and facilitate in the time we have our audience to pose some meaningful questions. We just had a wonderful session with Paul Barrett and Matt Lawler talking about the future 
of the landscape and how you're, like, you're looking to differentiate on the quality of your technology, the infrastructure, but also ultimately what it is that your value proposition is. Now, that could be ethics. I, I feel that in the you know, five, 10 years time, you might be able to say, well, we provide some of the best ethical investments and we have some of the best care for members and ultimately clients. Could you touch on some of the evidence you're seeing of how people can differentiate, particularly in that business to business space? Absolutely, and it's actually quite timely in that question in the sense that uh, quite a lot of research is recently emerging over the last five years or so. In particular, the Ethical Advantage Report commissioned by the Ethics Centre and delivered by Deloitte uh, found that increasing a firm's performance on the uh, governance index, which is one of the many third-party um, verification means of you know, ethical performance, uh, by one standard deviation, raised returns on assets by approximately 7%, and around 50% of those firms in the sample achieved that. And those results keep coming. So the 2019 study from the University of Malaysia found a positive association between ethical commitment disclosure and bank performance. Though interestingly, they found no relationship between charity disclosure and bank performance. And you can perhaps see that when we can contrast that with the cynicism present that we talked about earlier on, that giving to a charity is easy, right? Committing to internal performance is a little bit more complicated. And therefore, demonstrating that you've done that goes a long way. And studies by the Queen's School of Business and Golop show disengaged workers had a 37% higher absenteeism, 49% more accidents, 60% more errors and defects in the process. At, in other words, ethical performance and a genuine commitment to and proof of ethical commitment goes a very long way, not just in terms of like client satisfaction, but also in terms of reputation, internal performance and um, employee satisfaction. A happy workforce is crucial. Uh, but another thing that I think will spice this up, Gordon, we, one theme that we'll be concerned about as an ecosystem is that potential for greenwashing. Now, there, everyone has a, you know, a glossy brochure nowadays saying that they care about the future and they you know, tap into the imagery of, of wind turbines and so forth. But how do you differentiate between a firm that's giving ethical advice and one that isn't if you're a consumer? How does a, a licensee differentiate between ethical products and, and those that are, are posing as such? Well, this is a wonderful point for empathy, right? I mean, a wonderful point where a licensee can see both sides of this particular proposition in the sense that what you need to do in order to determine which products are in fact ethical is exactly what your clients are trying to do in determining which licensees are actually ethical or not, right? In other words, it really does come down to proof. So. For example, I mean, a good point of comparison here is uh, exactly what you would do for the financial performance of a given product, right? You would verify it. You wouldn't just take their word on it. The marketing's all well and good. The big words and the big commitments are all wonderful, but where's the proof, right? You would be looking for actual balance sheet information, demonstrated history of performance. And that's exactly what you need to be doing when it comes to ethical performance as well. I mean, exactly as you were saying, Matt, I mean, it's not exactly difficult to write down a list of lovely values and put them on front of a picture of a wind turbine and pop it up on your website and say, we are ethical. Prove it, right? And this, to be honest with you, that exact approach is increasingly fueling the cynicism that is at the core of the problem here in the sense that if they don't trust you, saying trust us is going to make it worse, right? We need to demonstrate that there's actual performance to be had here. Now, that can be done internally insofar as, you know, you can do things like evaluation data, transparency around your performance. In particular, it's good to see metrics. 
all too often ethical performance is put down in terms of broad trends towards values. Now we, we talk about accountability and we say that we value accountability. So what, right? Like what does that mean? Uh, putting a mechanism in the place that can be measured and reported upon and a quality measure at that is important in exactly the same way that having a quality metric for financial performance is important. You wouldn't just simply trust a firm that said, we've increased our profits. We're not gonna tell you how much or how, we just have. Um, so proof positive is necessary. So positive relationships are an excellent screening device, of course, with anyone you already have a good relationship with, but ensure those relationships are based on evidence or else they might function as biases accidentally. So Gordon, um, I'd love to close on an audience question. I'll give the, uh, the room around 30 seconds to be inspired, but I, I know that you do this work all year round, and this is a little vignette and a little opening for, for people. If, if a licensee of any scale is interested in collaborating, learning more about the different um, sort of methodologies that you're adopting to screen and to, to be proactive, uh, in a 60 seconds um, summary, what, what are some of the things that they can look out for in the remainder of the year with the Ethics Center? What we'll be looking at, we're expanding, obviously, uh, assisting with the, the uh, FACIA code and the, uh, any changes to that and implementation thereof. One of the results of the professionalization, uh, it's very interesting to compare your sector right now with other sectors that have recently professionalized or have professionalized a long time ago and looking at the trends that emerge as a result. Um, one of the things, I mean, the Medical Association, for example, is a really good example of that in the sense that their ethics are beyond repute. Their internal um, culture can be a little bit of trouble, but it is a, they're dealing with their clients and the trust that they are rewarded with as a result is immense. What we want to do is to get your sector to that exact same place. So building competency within the ethical space, and I don't mean that in a condescending way, it's just helping to articulate and be very, very clear and clarifying exactly what we are doing in that ethical space, why our approach is superior, why your clients should trust you and demonstrating that is very, very much what we're aiming towards with that. So keep an eye out for the Ethics Center. We'll be looking more into training around the FACIA code and uh, also the um, additional training is always available with that, uh, that framework I was describing earlier on, lifting any professional really up to that next level of practice. Well, look, Gordon, I think your ideas are fascinating and uh, we'd like, like to take this opportunity for thank you, particularly for being, bearing with us. I know it's very complicated to dial in to a conference and uh, you've been able to add some value, I hope, to all of our delegates. So a big round of applause for Gordon Young. Uh, if you can't hear that, that was almost a standing ovation. So uh, well done.